Four characteristics of God-given opportunities. Nehemiah 2, verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, so to give you an idea, Chislev was when the story started in chapter 1. Nisan is, is in our calendar about four months later. So it's been four months since Nehemiah started praying to when he has this opportunity to actually uh, speak to the king. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So as you know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, a very significant role. The king would often put one of his most trustworthy people as the cupbearer because what the cupbearer would do is, remember back then the kings were like sovereign uh, and they ruled everything. And so obviously there was all kinds of power struggles to get that position. And so people would try to poison the king because if he died, there was an opportunity to slide in to that spot through some kind of a military takeover or whatever. And so the cupbearer was the person that tested everything that went to the king. He tested it himself. He made sure if, if it was poisoned, he was going to go down, and he died before the king ever had to drink anything. So you're talking about someone that he very much trusted. He was in a great position of authority, great resources. It was a great job to have in that sense of, of having access to that. And, and Nehemiah wasn't even a Persian. He was an Israelite. Okay, so he's, he's bringing the wine before the king. He says, now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, keep in mind, again, culturally and in that time with kings, they were thought of as gods. And you never showed any other emotion other than joy or happiness or, or servanthood when you were in the presence of the king. In fact, if you displayed sadness, it communicated that you were displeased with the king, and they could literally have you beheaded for that. So this was, it could have been seen as a total sign of disrespect. For Nehemiah to even go in looking like he did was a huge risk. But the king asks him, you know, what's going on? You're not sick. This has got to be sadness of the heart. And then it says, then I was very much afraid. We understand why. His life was at stake. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So he comes and, and shares these truths with them and, and asks this huge request, even opening up to what's going on. And that's the first characteristic I want us to see with any God-given opportunity, is a God-given opportunity involves a great risk. Any God-given opportunity involves a great risk. And in particular, we not only just saw culturally why Nehemiah was taking a great risk, but there's even more behind the story if you know some of the history of what was going on in Israel at that time. It was, it was this Artaxerxes here, this king, that actually stopped the rebuilding of the walls about a decade and a half prior to this time. You can read this in the book of Ezra, which is the book right before Nehemiah. Go ahead and read it this week. But in the fourth chapter, the Israelites were rebuilding the walls at that time. And some people sent some complaints and the king Artaxerxes heard about it. And, and typically what they would do is they'd try to keep these vassal states that were under their control kind of squashed down so they could never rise up and, and overtake the main kingdom. And so he stopped the project so that they wouldn't be strengthened by those walls. So not only was... Nehemiah taking a risk just personally and emotionally in his role, but he was asking the very king who had shut down that project a decade and a half ago 
to let him go back and take it on now. I mean, he was all in. It was either this is going to happen or basically this is the last time I'm ever going to speak. I think that characterizes a God-given project. I mean, if, if you attempt something that requires no faith, that you know you got it already, then it requires no God. You don't need a God if you don't have to have faith in anything else, if you can accomplish it purely on your own. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, there's no pleasing God unless there's an element of faith or trust in him instead of ourselves. I believe God is giving us an opportunity to take a great risk for him and for our community in this project. I'm going to show you a, a little bit of what that is in terms of the building. These are early, so don't get too excited about this stuff. It can all change, but I think this is a, a pretty simple footprint here. Someone gave us this little pointer. They said, because we don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about things on here. So you see that up there? Okay, so this here is Springfield, if you know where the property is. This is the very north end of Springfield, uh, and it dead ends right up here just before it hits the loop. This is San Isidro Parkway along here uh, to give you a position. Doctor's Hospital, you see me over there on the wood? That's Doctor's Hospital over there. Over there on the wall, that's Taco Palenque <laughs> over there. And then Five Guys and Chipotle are right about there, right? You guys, you got me figured out, all right? So here's a general picture how, how the property could be laid out. We're pretty confident that the architects have the right layout of this, so this isn't going to change too much. This would be the sanctuary here. This middle section is a foyer area, and then this is children's ministry, student ministry. That's a two-story area, offices and so forth. So we've tried to lay it out as simply as possible where our foyer space services everything, and that's going to be a real flexible space for us to do a, a lot of different things in. I want to show you one other shot as well. So this is a little bit of a uh, more of a frontage type view. Again, don't get it too attached to this because this was the uh, initial rendering and a lot of these little details are going to change, but you get an idea of what's not going to change. This is about the size of the sanctuary. This is the size of the rest of the building, two stories, the foyer area. That's a little basketball court back there. And this is a lot of outdoor space, a children's playground, a patio area, and things like that, and then an entryway that's coming in. Uh, so this is what we're embarking on, a, a huge project, huge risk to do this. But as we go through here, we're going to see just as Nehemiah's project was not about the wall, ours is not about this building. And we're going to see as Nehemiah goes on, I'm going to reveal to you more how this is just a piece of a much greater puzzle we believe God's leading our church to uh, in our city so the second thing we're going to see in this story is, is what did Nehemiah do then uh, in preparation for it? So starting in verse 4, follow with me. It says here, it says, And the king said to me, so after Nehemiah takes this great risk to ask him, the king says to me, well, what are you requesting? So Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. 
And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So he's asking some specific details of Nehemiah. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So Nehemiah answered all of his questions. He'd obviously thought about this from the four months when he started praying to this point when he was asking the king. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Now I'm going to skip because I'm going to hit the different principles. I'm going to continue with what Nehemiah is doing here. So verse 11 goes on to say, uh, So Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, he said, and I, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So Nehemiah had given a lot of thought to this. He knew how he needed to travel. He knew what letters he needed to get through certain provinces. He knew what resources he needed and how he needed to ask the king for access to him. And when he got to the city, he knew exactly how he was going to assess the situation. In fact, if you have pictures of, of the city of Israel at that time or Jerusalem, you can see that he basically traveled around the walls in a clockwise fashion, examining every aspect of it to assess the needs of the project. Here's my second point to you that's true, I think, of any God-given opportunity. Is a God-given opportunity deserves a wise plan. A God-given opportunity deserves a wise plan. You see, a plan is not arrogant presumption. It can be. It depends on the attitude. If the, if the plan is we're going to do this and, and we're going forward no matter what, we believe this is what God wants us to do and we don't care what anyone else says and we're just going to go forward with this, that's an arrogant presumption. And you jump forward with financing or things that you don't know God's going to come through with and then you strap a church with something and then you try to manipulate the church to execute it and get behind it. Yes, that's not healthy planning. But planning in and of itself is not a non-spiritual thing. In fact, the Bible talks all about planning. We see it here in Nehemiah's example. Nehemiah had thought things out before he ever approached the king. He knew how much time he needed. He knew the resources he needed. He examined the situation to see what was needed to be done before acting. And basically what that does is it shows that a wise plan helps us faithfully steward a God-given opportunity. I want to just show you four or three principles that I think are so important to understand how plans help us be wise stewards of God's resources. The first is it provides accountability to our purpose. A plan provides accountability to our God-given purpose. See, when you write it down on paper and reveal it, 
Now there's lots of eyes that can examine it. It's not a, well, well, the pastor has this idea, this vision in his head. No one else knows about it, so we're just going to do whatever he tells us. That's not how the Bible talks about wise planning for leaders. When you put it down on paper, now suddenly everyone can see it and we can say, how does this fit in with our mission as a church? Our mission that says we're here to lead our city into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. Does our plan fit that? Well, then it's a good plan. The Bible puts it this way in Proverbs. If you go to the next slide, it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. See, when you put your plans down, when we as leaders have talked about this over and over again, when we've discussed it, what we're doing is we're constantly saying, are, are these consistent with who God's called us to be as a church? Because when we commit our plans to the Lord, then they will be established. You can trust that when they're committed to his word and to his principles. The second thing a plan does is it allows us to seek counsel and include others. It allows us to, to seek counsel and to include others. Proverbs 15.22 addresses this idea. It says, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Some of the things I'm going to share with you in a minute, we've been talking about as leaders for several years. We've shared this with the church a number of times at different points. So we've been getting a lot of counsel, praying about it, talking about it with others. As we go through this whole process, the, the reason we're doing it with planning is it allows us to include other people in the process. Architects, as they talk with us, we tell them, here's our ministry, this is what we seek to do, and they're able to give us guidance on how to shape a building in such a way that'll best accomplish the mission of our church. With financial people, they've been able to give us counsel about how do we walk through this project in a healthy, godly way. And when you put plans down, it allows you to bring in counsel and different people. We have a whole building team that's made up of different key staff people that oversee each ministry area. Those staff people each selected a handful of people from their ministry areas to give feedback and input into that part of the building. And so there's people from all over our church who are, have their fingerprints on this building to make sure that it's accomplishing what we want to do and what we want to be as a church. And planning allows us to do that. The third thing we see in the scriptures is it leads to success. Healthy planning or a wise plan leads to success. Proverbs 21.5 captures that. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Hasty meaning you jump into something too quick, you haven't given any thought, you don't have any plan, but someone who's diligent, that leads to success. And that's our heart as a church as we go through this and why we believe not only in this narrative story was Nehemiah wise with making a plan, but to follow suit is going to be best for our church. You see, a plan at its core is simply an outline for obedience. It's an outline for us to obey what God's given us as a church and the tasks that we have before us. So I want to share with you a little bit of our vision and our plan uh, as we go forward of how this building fits into it. So 
Here's our vision that we've talked about as a leadership for a while. This is kind of our desired future, what we see in accomplishing our mission as we go forward. Our, our vision is to reach every neighbor in every neighborhood of Laredo. So as our church is here in Laredo, that's our, our vision of what we'd like to do in such a way that they can experience a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. So that's our mission to lead our city into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the second part is how. To accomplish this vision, we want to reach people, provide places, and develop pastors. And to best reach people in every neighborhood of our city, we hope to plant a healthy church in each of six zip codes in our city. I don't know if how many of you know this, there's six zip codes that our city is broken up into. And as we've talked about this as a church, there's been people that have counseled us and saying, you guys need more land than you have. You already have too many people even for that and the way you've grown. If you guys have space, you're going to just get huge just like that. But we've made a conscious decision as leaders that we don't believe a, a large, huge megachurch is the most effective way to reach our city. Because one, there's language divides in our city. There's also just some social differences in our city that each church can just feel a little bit different and wouldn't be comfortable for everyone to go into everywhere you're at. We feel the best way to reach people is to incarnate that location and become, as Paul said, all things to all people. And we feel if we could plant a healthy church in every single zip code, that those churches then could be charged with reaching every neighbor and every neighborhood within their zip code. And we want to be a church that makes that happen, helps that happen, provides the resources and the training for that to happen. And we believe that's a goal, a vision, that you and I could see in our lifetimes. That before you and I die, if we have normal lifetimes, I mean, I could die when I walk out here today on the way to Taco Palenque. Or because I'm at Taco Palenque, I could die. <laughs> I'll cut back, I promise. I want to see this happen too. But we could actually see this happen. In fact, why we feel this project is worthwhile to do it, I want to show you how this will accomplish it. If we can build this new campus in terms of reaching people, we'll be able to more than double our current capacity of reaching people while moving to a, a healthier two-service format that we believe is healthier for our church as a whole. So we'll more than double the number of people we can reach just with the new campus. But if we can do this in a healthy way, we could keep this building, and our desire is to plant a church here, that's a Spanish-speaking ministry, that could then reach another 500-plus people here and, and, and branch out into a whole other area in our city that we haven't done because we're an English-speaking church with some Spanish-speaking small groups. So immediately, we almost triple the number of people that we could lead into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church just through this project, if that's all we saw it as. But we believe it's just a stepping stone. The second thing is providing places. Well, by doing this project, we would now have a, a place in the 045 zip code with the new building, and we'd have this one in the 041 zip code. So now we only have four zip codes to go to find locations, to put places down, and to train pastors and launch people into begin reaching that area. So we're already, what is that? Three quarters of the way there? 33%? Something like that, right? 
Last thing is developing pastors. Okay, we've started to do that here. We've launched people out from our church already in the past. Now we are learning to, to train and develop them here. We have a number of people on our staff that have never been in ministry before, never, don't have any training. We're doing the training on site. There's, there's not a person on our pastoral staff, I, well, I shouldn't say that, there's only one, that isn't in the midst of either seminary training or Bible school that this church is helping them get that training so that we can be more effective in what we're doing. And here's why we picked the size church that we did, is we feel at that size, we could uh, support a staff that would give us a full-time pastoral staff member in each of the key ministry areas of a church. And when you have someone full-time, it allows them the time and the thought to really lay out a healthy program in each of those areas to have training and resources for them. And now what we've become is a church that can resource other churches in our community that don't have that same number of pastors. In fact, if you've been in Laredo for any length of time, you know the majority of the churches, probably 95% of the churches in our city have a solo pastor. And one of the reasons they don't ever grow beyond that is because that person doesn't have a whole lot of training and they do everything in the church. And one of the things we've learned here is that you have to hand the ministry off. You gotta equip other people to lead small groups, to do other aspects of ministry. You are the body of Christ. The Bible says that we pastors are to equip the body to do the work of ministry. Our ministry is equipping you. Your ministry is to do the ministry. If we had those people in place, we could become a training center for our city and any church that would want to partner with us. All this stuff would be free resources we could provide. Every series that we've done here as a church since we started doing small group uh, sermon-based resources, I have all the messages written out. We have them taped in audio. We have all the small group resources. All that stuff we could hand off to a church free of charge and a pastor who's overwhelmed just trying to get his Sunday message done could now have material to begin shepherding and discipling people in his neighborhood that would then do the same thing you all have modeled for years, bumping into your neighbors, inviting them to come be shepherded and hear God's word opened up and explained in an understandable way. That's what we think we could be here in, in Laredo. Instead of one big church, a network of churches that may look different in some of their styles, but the heart of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're gonna point people to Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and to our neighbors. And we feel this building is a piece of that much bigger project of that plan. So that's what's exciting as we think about that and the opportunity that lies before us and how we're not just building a building. In a sense, we're building a spiritual wall around our city so that no one can say, I don't know where to go to church. I've never seen anyone meeting in homes. You know how many of my neighbors think that, uh, they think it's weird that I'm a pastor. They think, man, you, you have more parties than anyone in our neighborhood. There's constantly cars like lined up along. We just had one that just smashed into one of the neighbor's trucks the other day. It was just awesome for Jesus. He smashed into his truck in the name of Jesus, right? But they see that stuff going on and they start asking questions. What, but you know what? We only have like 30 small groups in this church. There are probably 300 plus neighborhoods that need Jesus parties going on every single week. So people have an opportunity to see how Jesus is changing their lives. I'm just saying. 
we got to smash a truck or two to accomplish the gospel. It's, it's all for Jesus' glory, right? <laughs> hey, moving on in this passage, let's see that uh, the third thing that a God-given opportunity always has, it pops up in any kind of project, and we're going to start in verse 9. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Later on it says in verse 17, Then I said to them, and now Nehemiah is speaking to all the people in the presence of these opposers. He says, You see the trouble we are in. You see how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for the good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Here's my third point. Is a God-given opportunity requires... Oh, I skipped it, sorry. That's my number four. We're going to go backwards here, okay? I'm going to give you number four and we'll go back to number three. A God-given opportunity faces strong opposition. A God-given opportunity faces strong opposition. But before I talk about that, I'm going to go back to number three that I skipped because a good plan is often shared out of order. That's my fifth point for you. That's a freebie. I'm going to give you that one free of charge. None of the other services are going to get that one. My, my third point is, is a God, I'm just going to share it. A God-given opportunity requires God's provision. A God-given opportunity requires God's provision. You see this in verse 8, the second half of verse 8. I'll take you there. After Nehemiah asked for all these things that he needed, it says, the king granted me what I asked. And then it tells us why. For the good hand of my God was upon me. See, had God not provided through this king, Nehemiah would not have acted. Had Nehemiah not taken this risk, had he not risked his life, had he had not felt that this was a worthy enough project to lay his life on the line for it, he would have never asked the king. And if he would have never asked the king, he would have never seen God's provision. You see, God's provision often signals God's timing. And one of the things we're committed to as a church and as a leaders is that we won't begin this project and we won't embark on this project unless we can do it in a healthy way, unless we can do it in a God-honoring way. What you won't see us do is get you all fired up and get a shiny building syndrome and take out a huge loan on it and then start pressuring the people of this church to pay that loan off. We've already talked about and prayed about what a healthy process would look like and, and what resources we need to have in hand to, for this to be healthy. And if God doesn't provide them, we're not moving forward. But we would rather risk that 
than simply sit still and let things go on as they continue to go on in our city. We believe we have a great opportunity before us. We believe this is a risk that's worth taking. And we believe in a God who is so much bigger than the obstacles before us that he is able to accomplish even more than we could possibly imagine. Part of that obstacle is just the, the price. The, this current facility, and it's gonna, probably going to be landing really close to this when we're done, is about $6.7 million. That's what it would cost to put all the parking, uh, that whole building up, everything there is about $6.7 million. That's a huge ask. That seems like an unsurmountable obstacle. But God provides where God leads, and we believe that, and we're going to trust him as we do that. The last thing, as I mentioned in those other passages, is that God-given opportunity faces strong opposition. We need to recognize as a church that the presence of strong objection and opposition doesn't mean that God's not in the project. In fact, it probably indicates that he is. I mean, just think about this. Do you think the devil's just going to sit idle when we seek to be a church that wants to make an impact in our city? Do you think he's just going to sit back and say, go ahead, Grace, just share the gospel with as many people as you can, keep training up pastors, keep planting churches and, and, and equipping others to lead others in, in Bible studies and show them the word of God? Keep doing that. I'm just going to sit back and, and let you do that. He has had a grip over the families of this city for way too long. And guaranteed, should we embark on this project, we're going to face opposition. Here's a simple verse. In fact, I'd encourage you to memorize it now. Nehemiah responded very simply in verse 20. He said, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Just share that. Hey, God will make us successful. We're going to rise up and build. You don't want to be a part of it. You want to oppose this? That's your choice. But have the integrity to understand then you have no right or no claim on what God does. Just share that and you move on. What I love about this story is that Nehemiah risked his life and his personal comfort as the cupbearer to the king. He had a great life. He had everything he needed. He was living in the palace. I mean, his family was set. He could have just stayed where he was and known that my family's going to be taken care of for many, many years to come. But he didn't. He took a huge risk. He risked not only his life, but his whole family's. But he did so out of love for God's people and out of providing a place for his people to worship the true God. You know, several centuries later, another Nehemiah would come on the scene, a greater Nehemiah, a Nehemiah who wouldn't just risk his life to love his people, 
a Nehemiah who would give his life for his people. His name was Jesus Christ. And much like Nehemiah, Jesus was living in the palace. He was living in heaven. He was there on the throne. He had the pleasures, the beauties, all the comforts of heaven were his, and he could have stayed comfortable for all of eternity had he wanted to. But when he looked down at his people, when he saw the brokenness of this world, he couldn't stay. You see, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus left the throne of heaven to rebuild what was broken on this earth. And, and, and by offering his life, by giving it, the Bible says he became the cornerstone. He became the starting stone of what he hoped to build on this world. Not a physical structure, but a spiritual one. It was the corner of his church. He's the cornerstone. And the Bible says that every single person who puts their faith and trust in him becomes another stone on that building that he's building, a building that's called the church, the people of God. Nehemiah, he had to ask a foreign king, a king that didn't even love the people of God. He had to ask him for the resources to go and build his project. And with incredible courage and confidence in his God, he risked his life to do so. How much more should we have the boldness to ask our king, our king who loves this city, our king whose resources are so far beyond any resource that Artaxerxes had, and know that he will provide what is needed to love and reach our city. Nehemiah could have played it safe and comfortable. He could have stayed as the king's cupbearer and built a nice, little, safe, cozy life for he and his family. But instead, he saw beyond his family to the family of God. And he was willing to risk his life for the sake of others. He would have had everything he needed, but he would have never been content to just sit in that king's presence because he knew that one day he was going to sit in the presence of the true king. What will our story be? What will characterize this church? Nehemiah would have stayed in the castle his life probably would have just fallen off the pages of history and you and I would not be reading about him today but because he stepped out we're going to see next week that every single family that participated in this project 
Not one was left out. Everyone, a whole chapter, just listing the names of the families that said, I'm in. I'll take on this project. They're right here. In the pages of history, they changed the future of their city. What's our story going to be? We can stay here. I'll be the first to admit this building project is a huge headache. It's way easier for me to just sit here and, and keep doing the things that we do every single week. I'm comfortable with them. I can cruise through that. It's safer for my family. It wouldn't cost us nearly as much. Just like you, I got five kids I got to put through college. I don't know how we're going to help with this. I got the same questions, but I think this is so much bigger than any of us. I'm in, God. I don't know what it's going to cost me. I don't know what challenges are going to come, but it's either that or mediocrity. It's either that or simple comfort. I think God has put us here for such a time as this. If we don't do it, who's going to do this in our city? You guys can do this. We can do this. He can do this. Through you and through me and through this church. If you look in your worship guide on the back of it, there's a continued prayer guide. I just want to challenge you again this week. Take a moment every day, five days this week. Spend some time reading these passages, praying through these prayer focuses. And my prayer, here's my prayer for you this week as you embark on this journey. Here's my prayer for me, that God would give you such a glorious glimpse of who he is. That he would give you such a spectacular picture of what this city could be. That you will never be satisfied with things the way they are. That he would just grip your heart so that we would have the courage to trust him as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, I'm I never get bored. I never grow tired of just the beauty of your word. How you did not leave any stone unturned when you recorded it, when you left these truths for us. We can find anything we need. And Lord, when we read it, when we just sit and meditate on it and understand it, we can't help but just know how true it is. We see it in our lives. We see it in the stories of history. Lord, we are living it as a church. Every week, every month, I see people's lives being put back together, people's lives being changed and transformed because someone introduced them to Jesus Christ because someone showed them how God has a plan for our marriages, that God has a plan 
for our homes, that he has a plan for our relationships and for every aspect of our lives. Lord, you see our city so much clearer than we do. So I plead with you to show us a glimpse this week of what you see. Lord, help us to catch a glimpse of who you are and what you are capable of. One that just so rocks our world that the day-to-day of our lives will never satisfy us ever again. We ask this for your glory, God, and for the good of this city, we pray. Amen.